Amen. What a blessing. My Heavenly Father watches over me. I think the older you get, the more you realize that. And uh, it's a tremendous blessing. It was a blessing when I was young, but it's a greater blessing as you've been through the valleys of life. And uh, just to thank the Lord for that truth. 1 John chapter number 1. 1 John chapter number 1. And I want to preach on a very familiar verse of Scripture. I realize there's great jeopardy in doing that because it's easy to um, say, I've heard everything there is to hear on 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9, and maybe you have. But, you know, the Lord many times can take that which we already know and as His Spirit works in our hearts, illumine the truth in a way that is, it's almost like learning it again. And so I trust you go to 1 John chapter number 1, verse 9. Let me just add my words to my brother Wayne's uh, greetings. It is a tremendous blessing to see you folks here, see some new folks here that haven't been to the conference before. It's certainly a blessing to have you here. I trust that God will meet your need wherever you are, that God will meet your need. For those that are returning, I trust that God will continue to work and use these conferences to be a blessing to you. I know they're a blessing to me. And um, I know for myself, getting to preach early is kind of nice because then you can just sit back and get, just let the Lord work in your heart. But I do trust that this morning, uh, this, excuse me, this evening, I, I do know what time it is, but anyway, the, I trust that this evening, um, we'll just get started on dealing with this wonderful truth that he might sanctify and cleanse it. And I'd like just to focus just for a moment on the power of 1 John 1, 9, the power to cleanse. God has a provision of cleansing. I don't think any Christian in this room would come close to debating the fact that every single day of our lives, we need 1 John 1, 9. I've learned in 20, almost 29 years of ministry, I've learned that when you're preaching, nobody can relate with perfection. They cannot relate with perfection, but everybody can relate with imperfection. We all know what it is. In fact, I don't know about you, but when I read Peter denying the Lord, and weeping bitterly. I think any Christian who's been saved for any length of time can relate with that. We know what it is to fail the Lord, know it, and be broken about it. So what's the answer? Where is the provision that God gives us to restore fellowship? Now, most of you know this, but let's lay a little bit of a foundation. We know that 1 John chapter number 1, or for the book of 1 John, was written to God's people. And we know that 1 John chapter number 1 particularly is talking about fellowship with God. Now, I think we all know the day we got saved, judicially, we were justified, and God looked at us and declared us, of course, innocent because of Christ's provision of his blood atonement. We understand that judicially at salvation, we are forgiven. However, we also understand the moment we were saved, we were born again, which means we have, like we heard just a moment ago, son, we have a heavenly father. And just like an earthly father and an earthly son, that earthly son can do something that hinders the fellowship between the son and the father, so it is with God and with us. I uh, remember back a few years ago, I was, I think, one of our youth conferences here, a teen revival conference. Um, one of our speakers was speaking and giving a personal testimony of a time he did something that hindered his fellowship with his dad. I guess he, as I remember the story, he was grounded to his room, and, and um, he was getting bored, and he began to think in his room, what did he have in his room that could entertain him? Of course, this is before, you know, iPhones and iPads and all those kind of stuff. And, and so he, he all of a sudden remembered, I think he had a gross of bottle rockets in his, in his, in his uh, closet. And he figured, you know, what I could do is open the window, and I can just light bottle rockets, and they'll go over the neighbor's house, and my parents will probably think somebody else is shooting off bottle rockets. And uh, so he got a bottle rocket set. Of course, his parents had told him, do not fool with fireworks in the house. And, and he knew that, but he was bored. And, 
And uh, you know how many uh, teenagers and uh, young children can have temporary insanity. And uh, so um, he takes that bottle rocket and he puts that bottle rocket in there and lights it. And something caught on the bottle rocket so that it began to fizz, but it didn't shoot out the window. It just sat there in the bottle and, of course, filling the room with smoke. And, and uh, this friend of mine who, um, uh, you know, he, he panicked. He realized he, he got to get, get that thing out of the house fast, so he throws it out the window, and it blows up just literally feet outside the window. Just, of course, he grabs the window, slams it down, picks up a book, sits in the corner, and is reading. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he hears the footsteps, his dad footsteps coming down the hallway. And I think every... Young person knows the sound of your father's footsteps when you know the next thing that's going to happen is death. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) There's a certain sound that they make. And he heard his dad open the door, and uh, he said, Frank, is anything going on in here? And uh, here's a cloud of smoke, sulfur. (laughs) He looks up from the book, oh, no, Dad, everything's fine. (laughs) You know, at that moment, my friend and his dad weren't getting along very well. There was broken fellowship, and of course, that was remedied, and we won't go into that, but the point I'm making, friend, we all know what it is, and a human relationship is a son. You, I'm sure even those of you are grown men, remember times you did something your dad didn't want you to do, and even if he didn't know about it, it hindered your fellowship, didn't it? There was a wall there. Something wasn't right. And I've certainly seen teenagers now for these years of ministry. It's such a wonderful thing when they get right with their fathers and that fellowship is restored with an earthly father. We all understand that dynamic, and that is exactly the dynamic that God is dealing with here in 1 John chapter number 1 and verse number 9. But it's an absolutely powerful truth, one of which I think we become so familiar with, not only do we sometimes misunderstand it, but we come used to it so that in a certain sense we do not experience its power because we do not fully embrace all that it means. And I want to submit to you tonight that there may be some misunderstanding about 1 John 1, number 9, because I'm going to tell you that I believe this with all of my heart, 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9 is powerful. And if you do not vibe with that statement, it could, could it be that maybe you have a misunderstanding of what it means? So let's take a fresh look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9, because it is the divine mechanism that God has given us to restore fellowship with God and to know his cleansing. Now, I'll be honest with you, preaching the very first night does have its advantages, and one of the things I want to put the rest here at the very beginning, I know as I've announced this text as I get into the message, one or two speakers are going to begin to panic, <laughs> because they're going to think that I took their message. But I will tell you, I'm sure you will hear some of these things revisited, but we're just going to take right now just an introduction to the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know this is going to be developed as the week goes on. But let's begin with a condition. We see three things here. First of all, you see a condition. If, a condition for cleansing, we see the character of the one who is cleansing, and we see, last of all, the consequences of cleansing. And I just, it's a simple, simple outline. I don't think anybody would come up with much different. You might call it differently, but it'd be the same concepts in those three points. Now, first of all, we have a very important condition. It says, if we confess. Now, we know if is conditional, and then we know the word we. Okay, who is the we? It's very important anytime God deals with a condition like this, who is he talking about? Now, for you that are about 30 years old and, or 40 years old and older, you can just check out for a moment. I need to clarify, when I'm talking about we, I'm talking about W-E, not W-I-I. Okay. We got to get that straight because some of the kids were getting excited. Okay. So, um, so what does the we mean? 
Well, it's very important for us to understand it because if you're not a part of the we, it won't work. It will not work. So who is the we? Well, if you go back two verses, the we is simply the us. If we confess our sins, what's that talking about? Verse number seven. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us. Okay, so this is talking to blood-bought believers. It is talking to people in this room who one day put your faith in the cleansing of Jesus Christ, his blood, and you trusted him to wash your sins away, and you trusted him to keep you out of hell. The Bible tells us, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10, 43. Okay, we understand this. This is believers. Okay, so if we, now let's go to the next word, confess. Now, it's a word, I understand, the word particular here. I think we know a lot about the word, but let's just think about it for a moment. Let's first of all take its etymology. Now, let's start with the fact that an etymology does not always define a word. In this case, it's not perfect, but it comes close and at least gets us thinking. The very first part of the word is the word homo. Now, obviously, in the English, we, we use that word. It comes from the Greek, and it means same. That's no shock to us. Unfortunately, in our culture, we would think of that with the word homosexual, and so we understand that's what it means, same. Okay, it's also used otherwise, like homogenized, things like that, but that's what the word means. Okay, the next word is the word lagos. Okay, we, many of us know that. In fact, any preacher out here has heard of the, the Bible program called lagos, and so lagos is real simple. It's the word for the word, word. <laughs> So if we're going to be literal about it, we'd be to say, if we say the same words about our sin as God does. Now, that helps us. And again, an etymology does not always define a word, so we have to go a little bit closer. It's not just pedantically saying the same words that God does about our sin. It is, hang on, don't miss this, agreeing with them. So confession is not getting down in your bed in the uh, before you go to bed and say, oh, by the way, God, uh, I, I sinned today, please forgive me. It's not talking about that. It's talking about calling it what God calls it. God, I, did, I, I, did, I said some words to my wife that weren't right. Would you, it was wrong. Now, it, technically, I want you to understand that the word confess is not saying, will you forgive me? I don't think it's wrong to say, will you forgive me? What I'm simply saying is, the moment you agree with God, it's taken care of. So it's not just saying, will you forgive me? In fact, I think some people say, will you forgive me? And they're not confessing it. Confessing is agreeing. God, it is as bad as you say it is. Now, I have found personally in my life that using strong Bible words helps. Like wicked? That's in the Bible. How about evil? Have you ever doubted God? We don't think doubting God's that big a deal. But you know what God calls it in Hebrews chapter number 3? An evil heart of unbelief. It's good to call it that. That's what he calls it. See, there's a lot of things that God describes in his word, and it's oftentimes, I think, extremely helpful to say, okay, God, I agree with you. Can we put it this way? It's walking into the courtroom of your conscience. It is taking the stand. It is pointing at yourself and saying, God, I'm guilty. I take your side against me. Now, many times, I think today in our culture, we have a tendency to dumb down our sin because our culture does. In the Old Testament, we see that if you would treat your parents lightly or you would despise them or treat them in a disrespectful manner, you know what would happen? You'd have been executed. Now, I recognize we don't live in a theocracy, and I recognize that a theocracy is not going to come until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. I recognize that. But that helps us understand what God thinks about it. And I encourage young people to get on their knees and say, God, I did something in the Old Testament you would have executed me for because that's what it says. Confession is simply agreeing God is as bad as you say it is. 
So confession is just agreeing with God. It's taking God's side against yourself. Years ago in the country of Prussia, there was a king, Frederick the Great, who had, uh, uh, was, for whatever reason, touring a prison in Berlin. As he was touring the prison, evidently he came into a great courtyard, and many of the prisoners recognized this was the great king of Prussia. Now, of course, their legal system would have been far more different than ours, and when someone was thrown into prison, many times there was really no legal way out. It was, uh, it was almost like you're going to spend your life. There was like a life sentence. And so when these prisoners saw the king, they recognized this may be my only hope to get out of here. So one by one, the prisoners began to fall before the great king, and they began to declare their innocency and explain that they had been framed and giving all kinds of reasons why they should be released. But pretty soon, the king noticed that every single prisoner in the courtyard had fallen at his feet except for one. Intrigued by the one who seemed to be trying to get as far away from the king as he possibly could, he turned to the man lurking in the shadows, and he pointed at him. He said, you, sir, what are you in here for? The man turned back, and he said, Your Majesty, looked him right in the eye, said, Your Majesty, I am in here for armed robbery. The king looked at him and said, What do you have to say for yourself? The man looked back and said, Your Majesty, I am guilty, and I deserve my sentence. The king immediately turned to the guards. Guards, open the gates. Get that vile wretch out of here. I'll not have that vile wretch defile all these innocent prisoners. Let him go. And he walked free. And all the innocent prisoners stayed in prison. You know what happens, friends? You ever justify your sin? Well, God, you know, everybody's doing some of you teenagers. Everybody in the youth group watches the movie. God, I know it has some cuss words and has some dirty scenes, but everybody's doing it, God. You know what happens? You stay in the prison house of guilt. God, I treat my parents like dirt, but everybody does it. I mean, this is 2013 America. I mean, this is an Old Testament Israel. God, it's not that big a deal. You will stay in the prison house of guilt. You know how you get out of the prison house of guilt? Say, oh, God, you were right. Oh, God, it was wicked. God, I had no business watching that movie. It doesn't matter if everybody else did. God, it was wrong. And he lets you free. See, confession, friends, is agreeing with God. And I'm convinced in the early part of this conference that God is going to park on some of our front porches, he's going to ring our doorbell, and he's going to say, you got a problem, deal with it. There's men out here, perhaps even men in the ministry, who do not treat your wives right, and God is going to park on your front porch and said, my standard is you love your wife like Christ loved the church, and you're going to recognize I don't do that. And this week, I think, as the week progresses, you realize that there's no way you and I can do it without Christ literally enabling us and loving through us. But, it, friends, it is possible through Christ because all things are possible through God. But the truth is, for all of us in this room, God is going to deal with this. I'm, I'm convinced he'll do it in my heart because that's what God does. He begins to deal with it. He washes us with the word. You hear the preaching of the word, and God confronts you with, you got an issue, deal with it. You have an unresolved conflict, deal with it. There may be a dear pastor out here who was wronged in your local church. And I mean, some people did you dirty and some people did you wrong. And I will tell you, friend, it may be completely legitimate, but perhaps this week God will open your heart and say, you know, they did you wrong, but the anger and hatred in your heart was worse, even though no one ever saw it. 
And God knows he deals with us, with those things that are hindering fellowship with him, those things that are hindering our walk with God, and he deals with us. And confession is simply say, God, you're right. It's agreeing with God. It's really not hard. It's not rocket science. And I think most of us, in, in many ways, look at 1 John 1, 9, and that part of it we've got, sure. But there's a second part of it I think we often forget. Not only is confession agreeing with God about how our sin looks, it is agreeing with God about sin's solution. This is where we miss it, and this key concept I have found, I have watched scores of teenagers absolutely liberated with this side of confession. And this side of confession is saying, God, it's not just God, I, I, it was wicked, it was wrong, that's important. But it is also saying, God, I don't just agree with you about how my sin looks, I would agree with you what I need to do about it. Now, let's be honest, there are times all we need to do is do business with God. Again, perhaps the pastor who uh, in his heart had anger and hatred, he may just need to deal with it with God. It was maybe not seen by others, but he's got to deal with God's conviction. As I recognize there are sometimes situations that God deals with us. Others may not know about in our recesses of our heart. We got to do business with God. But there are other times Bible gives us very specific directions on how to deal with it, and many times... We push this off. And may I say that when you do not biblically confess, the verse doesn't work. It doesn't work not because it's not true. It doesn't work because you didn't do it right. <laughs> You've got to biblically confess. And biblical confession is always agreeing with God about his solution. Now, there's a verse of Scripture that I find to be so helpful about this, and that's in Proverbs 28, verse number 13. He that covereth his sins, what does it say? Shall not prosper. The truth is, friends, what is that talking about? What does it mean to cover your sins? Well, I've got a question for you. Can you cover sin from an all-seeing, all-hearing, ever-present, omnipresent God? And the answer is no. So the verse cannot be talking about God. So who is it talking about? It is talking about people who deserve to know. Now, let me give you an illustration. I was, uh, I shouldn't tell you what year I was born in, but you probably already think I'm old, so that's okay. I was born in 1960, August 29th. And when I came home from the hospital on August 29th, 1960, my parents did not hand me a rule book. I don't know many people might think the Van Gelderen household was an extremely strict household, but I never thought it was. I will tell you, when Jesus shows up in a house, it doesn't seem strict. It really is true. Well, I don't remember one written rule in our house, not one, not one. I don't remember ever there being a written rule. I can never remember reading a rule in our house. I just can't. There may have been, I just don't remember. But I will tell you, friends, I knew, I knew my parents' heart. Now, I remember we moved from Durango, Colorado, and we came to Chicago, Illinois. Now, talk about culture shock, even for a first grader. I thought, this place is way different than that country place I came from. It was like, it was totally different. The kids were different. The culture was different. And one of the things that was different is the kids were far more depraved in the sense that their depravity came out more. I mean, I don't remember anything about the first graders in Colorado, but the first graders in Chicago were really bad. I remember every cuss word I've ever heard, I heard first from the lips of a first grader. I remember coming home and saying, Dad, what does this word mean? I'm surprised that my, don't remember my parents being totally shocked. They probably were, but they hid it. So they were bad kids. And I soon learned something in the Chicago public schools. There was something called peer pressure. And um, they would, uh, 
you know, every once in a while, something would come along, and some of you that remember public school, and it was kind of like, hey, you're going to watch such and such tonight. And it would get all around school, so you kind of got the idea, if you wanted to be in tomorrow, you had to watch such and such that night. It might have been the Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight that dates me, uh, but it may have been something like that. But it was always something, you know, are you going to watch this tonight? And I remember back when I, I don't know, I could have been second, third grade, I can't remember. But I remember the word around school was, hey, man, you're going to watch Elvis Presley tonight? Now, Elvis Presley, back in the 60s, made made-for-television um, TV specials. They weren't in movie theaters. They went right to TV. How many know what I'm talking about? No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay. Oh, okay, I'm just coming at you. But anyway, and so, uh, so uh, I remember thinking, oh, we've got to watch Elvis tonight. Now, you have to understand, you say, preacher didn't know you know it. I was raised in a preacher's home. I had no idea who Elvis Presley was. He could have played second base for the New York Mets. I didn't know. I had no idea who he was. So I go to my younger brother, John, and I go to my older sister, Joy, and I say, we got to watch Elvis tonight. Well, they already knew that. I mean, it had been around school. you got to watch Elvis tonight to be in. So we got up in the den there at 7 o'clock central, you know, 8 eastern, 7 central. We're all there, you know, to be on time, you know. We got that old television turned on. You remember when televisions were a honking piece of furniture? You remember that? Yeah. So we sit down in front of that thing. We, it was, those were the days, folks. You've got to tell these kids missing out. You turn on the TV, and there was always a blizzard going on, you know. And it wasn't the weather channel, you know what I'm talking about. There'd be a blizzard coming across the screen. And then you had something called rabbit ears. Anybody know what I'm talking about, rabbit ears? Okay, talk to your great-grandfather. But anyway, uh, you get these great rabbit ears, and, and our, our TV was, was so bad. I mean, it, it, only one position would work, so it'd take about five minutes to get the rabbit ears set. Then you get the rabbit ears set, you sit down, and, you know, hope the thing won't flipping and start flipping. And that was the good old days when you had CBS, NBC, and, and ABC. And, well, you had WGN in Chicago, and there was Channel 11, but we always thought that was totally worthless because all it had was Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and those were worthless. So we never counted Channel 11. It was worthless. So we'd find, you know, it was one of the big three. I can't remember which one, and we got it on. We got the rabbit ears set, and, man, we're here. We're going to be in, man. We're watching Elvis Presley. Who's he? I don't know, but let's, we're watching Elvis Presley. It's Dr. John, myself, my sister Joy, if you can imagine So, uh, now we're totally clueless. We are totally clueless. We are. And I am telling you, friend, I'm telling you the honest truth. In five minutes, maybe less. Five minutes. We're looking at each other and thinking, you know, I don't think mom and dad wants to watch this. <laughs> and I remember we walked over to the television set and we turned it off. Now, I'm telling you, we did not turn it off because there was a rule in the book. We turned it off because we knew our parents' heart. And my point to every young person out here is, you do too. And there are young people sitting here right at this very moment who know there's things you did behind your parents' back. And the truth is, you know you never told them, and you know that they would be grieved and burdened if they knew about it. I remember years ago in this auditorium, probably 10 plus years ago, making the statement, teenager, if you have ever done anything behind your parents' back that if they knew about, they'd be grieved and they'd burden. You'll never be right with God until you tell them, based on Proverbs 28, 13. I remember it was a few days later, a senior in high school at that time came to me and he was beaming. He said, Brother Van Gelder, when you said that, he said, I knew I had to get it right. He said, years ago, he said, I did something really bad. And he said, I figured, I've asked God to forgive me a million times, and I've always found people who do not use Proverbs 28, 13, ask God to forgive them a million times. Because it doesn't work. Because they're not biblically confessing. 
He said, but I realized when you said that, I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to tell my parents. I've always said to myself, you don't have to tell your parents, but I said, I knew I had to. He said, I'm going to be honest with you, Brother Van Gelder. And he said, I sat down with my parents, and I told them, and I'm going to be honest with you, they cried. It was tough. I cried, but he's, he's smiling while he's telling me this. But he said, I want to tell you, I am feel closer to my parents than I've felt in a long time. And I feel closer to God than I've felt in a long time. You see, friends, confession is not just agreeing with God about the sin looks. It's agreeing with God about the solution. He that covereth the sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You see, friends, the word cover there obviously isn't talking about God because you can't cover sin from God. It's talking about people who deserve to know. It's talking about parents. It may be talking about a boss. It may be talking about a school that you cheated on the test or broke a rule. It could be a variety of scenarios. It could be a theft that occurred. And the truth is, you sit here tonight, you know that you're not right with God. You've asked God to forgive me, but you can't get out of the prison house of guilt. Yet God says if we confess our sins, which simply means agree with me. Agree with me about the sin and agree with me about the solution. And I'm talking to some dear people. Your Christian life going nowhere fast. You're not prospering. It's like you're not prospering in your walk with God. You're not prospering in your fight against sin. You're not prospering in your service for the Lord. Could it be, as you're sitting here, God's making it very clear, and you don't have to search for covered sin. God will make it known. Right now, as I'm sitting here preaching to you, perhaps the videotape or the DVD is all on your heart has already replayed multiple times, and you could remember. Yeah, I remember doing that. I have never gotten that right. Remember years ago, I was preaching on this particular, not this verse, but this particular truth in a Christian school and had my two team captains in there. I was doing the wars. It was back in, in um, I think it was uh, in the 90s, mid-90s. And I remember finishing the service, not thinking you could think about it. God worked in the chapel. And, and it was 24 hours later, my two team captains came to me and said, Brother Van Gilder, we just need you to know something that yesterday in chapel, God just absolutely cleaned our clocks. And we just wanted you to know that last night we both called our respective parents and we told them everything. And one of those was a pastor in Chicago. Another was a youth pastor, a large group, young youth group in Michigan. I'm convinced neither one would be in the ministry if they hadn't cleared it up. Because you don't prosper. You won't prosper. And so God is telling us here that you, you got to confess it. Agree with God about the solution. It might be going back to a boss and saying, I'm a thief. It might be, my friend, whatever. I don't know what it might be, but God will make it clear in your heart. It's unresolved. Might be calling a high school principal and say, hey, I stole something from that high school. Or I cheated on a test. I got to get it right. So confession, agreeing with God about your sin, and then agreeing with God about the solution. If we confess our sins. Now, that brings me to the second point, and that's the character of the cleanser. The Bible says he is faithful and just. Now, simply, friends, I think faithfulness. You say, what is it faithfulness? Isn't it interesting, the two characteristics that God gives? And faithfulness is simply this. You won't be the first exception. If you biblically confess your sin, he is faithful. If I could take you tonight to Clarendon Hill Cemetery off Cass Avenue and Darien, Illinois, and moved to the back of the cemetery, I could show you a tombstone that has the word faithful on it three times. It says faithful husband, faithful father, and faithful pastor. Now, the reason I know so much about that tombstone is the tombstone of my father. Now, obviously, a human being cannot be perfect in faithfulness, 
But I will tell you as a son looking at my dad's life, I know he was not perfect because obviously no human being is, but I will tell you this, friends. He was faithful. And what I mean by faithfulness is my dad never made a promise to me he didn't keep. And I will tell you, he made a lot of promises to me. He kept every one. Probably the most prevalent promise that he would make to me is he'd walk out of the door, uh, maybe at 8 o'clock, heading to the church, 7.30, heading to church, and he said, hey, Jim, White Sox are playing the Senators tonight. That dates me. But anyway, White Sox are playing the Senators tonight. He says, let's go to the ballgame tonight. Now, I knew if my dad said that, we were going to the ballgame. Every time we went to the ballgame, we never didn't go to the ballgame. And uh, I remember uh, sometimes uh, dad would say, he'd walk out the door and say, okay, we're going to go to the Cubs game. Now, that meant that it wasn't going to be leaving at 5 o'clock. That meant you were going to leave at 10, 10.30 because Cubs only played in the daytime back then. And, and so I remember that. Yeah, we're going to go see the Cubs play. And I preferred to see the Cubs over the Sox, but we didn't go there as much because it was harder to get there and, and uh, whatever. But uh, we go to the Sox a lot because they were only half an hour down the freeway. But, but anyway... He said, I remember getting out on the back porch and have my ball glove ready, you know, and, and have my ball cap on, and I'd be looking up there at Cass Avenue and waiting for my dad's Plymouth Duster. That Plymouth Duster, you know, that was a really neat card. Do you guys remember that? Plymouth, and I remember that old Plymouth Duster, like cardboard car. But anyway, and uh, that Plymouth Duster, would, and I know my dad was, he kept his promise. One time I decided I was going to try to get my dad. Uh, not not. Literally, but I decided I was going to try to put him in an, an ethical dilemma. And so I said, hey, Dad, you know, we've been to see the Cubs, the White Sox. We've seen the Chicago Bulls. This is pre-Michael Jordan. This is way back. And, uh, and then uh, I said, Dad, you know, we, I, I never asked Dad to go see the Bears because they only played on Sunday. They stunk so bad, they never got Monday nights So uh, back in my day. And so I never asked Dad to go see the Bears. So I said, Dad, we've never seen the Blackhawks play. I said, Dad, can we go see the Blackhawks day? And my dad, probably without thinking, said, sure, sure, let's go see the Blackhawks this season. Well, I knew something my dad didn't know. I knew that the Blackhawks played home games on two nights, Sunday and Wednesday. I thought I'd put my dad in ethical dilemmas. What are you going to do? Well, I will tell you, friend, that entire season, the Blackhawks played every home game on Sunday and Wednesday. There was only one home game they had on a non-Sunday or non-Wednesday. It was a Saturday night, and we were there. (laughs) They played the New York Rangers. We lost six to five. I still remember it. Uh, But my point is, friends, he was faithful. Now, we all understand, humanly, people can be faithful. But friends, in a multiplied, in times infinity, God is faithful. And maybe you had a father that wasn't faithful. But that doesn't mean God's not faithful. You see, it's a promise. And in these days, as we go through the promises of God, may, may it stick in our hearts that God is a God who has promised there is a way to cleansing. There is a way to restore fellowship. He's faithful. Now, there's a second word, and that's the word just. And it has the idea he's justified. He's, he's right. He's just. Which simply means that God has the right. He's justified in forgiving us. Maybe this illustration will help. Let's imagine, I know we're just imagining, but imagine you stole $1,000 worth of merchandise from Walmart. And imagine you decide, man, I'm really guilty about this. I got to get this right. So you walk down to the downtown of your uh, city. You stop some bum stumbling down the street and you say, hey, I got to talk to you for a minute. I ripped off Walmart 1000 bucks. I'm so guilty about it. Hey, man, would you forgive me? And the guy goes, I ripped off more than that. Yeah, sure, don't worry about it, man. He has no right to forgive you. The only person that has a right to forgive you is the one who paid for it. And when you sit down with Walmart and they say, don't worry about it. We're just glad you confessed it. You can walk out, but they have the right to forgive you. 
And you can know I'm forgiven because they're justified. They're right. So we see the character of the cleanse, the, the one who cleanses, but it brings us to a final point here tonight, and that is, what are the consequences? If we confess our sin, if we get that honest about our sin, if we agree with God about the sin, we agree with God about the solution, what, God says he's faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm not going to fully develop those words because there would certainly some wonderful time, there would be some time there to, to, to deal with these wonderful truths, but I think we understand to some degree. Now, forgiveness, obviously, is the idea of God releasing it. There's, there's no wall between it. It's gone. And cleansing seems to have the idea of the conscience. John chapter 8 says that God convicts the conscience. So evidently the Holy Spirit uses the conscience as, as a vehicle of conviction. And then in Hebrews chapter number 10, it tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works so we can serve the living God. Okay, which seems to indicate then that cleansing has the idea of cleansing of the conscience. Could we say, and I'm, not, I'm sure there's objective, subjective side to both sides of these, but cleansing seems to focus more on the experience of the conscience being cleansed. Could we say this? It's the experience of getting out of the prison house of guilt. Now, there's some things we need to clarify here because it's very important. The way we know we're forgiven and the way we know we're cleansed is not because we feel forgiven and not because we feel cleansed. The way we know we're forgiven and the way we know we're cleansed is because it says so. You have to start with the objective, and you have to, and the only reason there would not be forgiveness and cleansing is if, number one, you did not biblically confess, we've dealt with that, or number two, you biblically confess, but you don't believe God. What would you do on the street if you stopped the guy and you said, hey, bud, uh, uh, Jesus can save you. you. Go through the gospel. He says, yeah, I'd like to be saved. He prays, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please save me. And then he looks up at you and says, I don't think he did. Would you be excited about that decision? No, I tell you, friend, you couldn't be excited about it because unbelief is the opposite of what the Bible says it takes to be saved. So what do you do with a guy who says, oh, God, I, I was wrong, I did this, shouldn't I, oh, God, I was wrong. Think it's, I don't think he forgave me, I don't feel forgiven. What is that? That's unbelief, that's not good. So the only two reasons 1 John 1.9 wouldn't work is number one, if you don't do the condition, and number two, if you don't believe it. So when it comes to this, number one, uh, uh, the very first thing I want us to see here on this last point is that we know we're forgiven and we know we're cleansed because it says so. I will tell you, friend, we get dead honest with God. We can get up over our knees and say, I've got a clean heart. I'm cleansed because it says so. I tell you, many times I tell young people, you know, you may carry a little bit of a burden until you talk to your parents. But you, because that's, you grab on, but the, the point is, you are going to get to the other side if you believe God. Now, friends, this cleansing, many times we focus on the objective and we need to because that's the foundation. But I will tell you, friends, I've noticed this in these years of ministry working with teenagers, that forgiveness and cleansing also has an experiential side. Cleansing is real. And that's why many times kids will say, oh, I cheated in fifth grade. I've asked God to forgive me a million times. I'm saying, you want out of the prison house of guilt? Because you're obviously not. What's the problem? The problem from that case, you need to go to that principle and you need to get it right. Then you'll get out. You agree with God. Okay, so it will work. Okay, so, so this cleansing is experiential. Now, it's based on the objective, but it has experiential. Let me give you an illustration. I remember back uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. 
We're conducting War Special Forces, which is uh, our youth ministry to, to uh, Christian schools. And, and I remember it was the final night, and kids were giving testimony. And I'll never forget a young man who manifested a lot of spiritual need early in the week. He stands the microphone. The kid is beaming. He said to his classmates, almost his whole school was there, a bunch of visitors were there. And he says, I just came from Walmart. And everybody's kind of, well, you know, I, what's going on? And he's kind of talking a little bit slow, and he says, I just told Walmart everything I'd been stealing from them. The manager of Walmart. And then he looks at the, the audience and he smiles real big and he says, he gave me mercy. Now, he didn't tell us what that means. And I tell young people, mercy is not that there's no consequences. Mercy simply means it's not as bad as it would have been if you'd have gotten caught. That's what mercy is. And so he said he gave me mercy. He didn't tell us what it meant, but he's, he obviously was thrilled about it. He said he gave me mercy. And then he looked at, at these students who were shocked. And he says, I was walking out of Walmart. And he says, I want to tell you, he says, joy overflowed my heart. You know what I found in working with teenagers? Joy finds them in strange places, like the principal's office. <laughs> like tears streaming down their face, telling their dad everything they've done behind his back. That seems like a strange place that joy would meet you. But I will tell you, friend, that is cleansing. That's getting out of the prison house of guilt. I um, have the joy of traveling with young men who travel and give their testimonies. And there's three young men in this room that I know in the last, last little bit I've heard their testimonies. And you know what's amazing to me? One young man hiding things behind his parents' back, and he gets right with his parents, and he's getting everything together that he had snuck behind his parents' back, all the, the, the DVDs, CDs, magazines, everything. And he says, you know, I'm walking up the stairs. Give my dad every, tell him everything. And he says, joy overwhelms my heart. That seems strange, doesn't it? Another young man who's in this audience gave the testimony of being at the teen revival conference. God's speaking to his heart, calling his dad, dad up and saying, dad, when I get home, I got to talk to you. And I will tell you, friend, sitting down with his dad, you know what he said? The moment he opened his mouth and began to tell his dad everything, God was there, and a burden was lifted. And I will tell you, friend, cleansing's real. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe at 11 o'clock at night, tears streaming down your face, saying, God, I got angry. God, my attitude toward my spouse was wrong. Oh, God, it was wicked. And my friend, when you got it right with God, we know what it, well, you, you understand, a believer, those moments when God meets with you and you know you're forgiven, you're cleansed. See, friends, 1 John 1, 9, the power of 1 John 1, 9, it's powerful. But the power isn't just in your life. The power goes to other lives. I remember being in Woodbridge, Virginia about three years ago. And uh, we were there on a Sunday morning. Of course, we're going to be there all week long doing the War of Special Forces. And, and I remember a, a newly saved dad. I could tell he hadn't been saved very long. He comes to me. He's really burdened. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, would you pray? He said, my son Paul is an atheist, and I'm going to try to get him here Wednesday night. But he said, I have no guarantee he'll come. And I kind of got the idea that he was separated from his wife and the son lived with the, the mother, and, and I understand that was the basic scenario. And so I, we began to pray for Paul. That was his name. He said, would you pray for Paul? So we started to pray for Paul. And I remember Wednesday night, we're there, and all of a sudden, a nice truck pulls up, door opens, out steps Paul. Now, Paul was your kind of cerebral-type kid, intellectual-type kid. You could tell, had a long ponytail down his back, and he didn't look athletic at all. I thought to myself, this is strange. A kid like this would come. 
But he comes and no friends, nobody there, but he comes. I'm sure it was in answer to his dad's prayer. It's remarkable. So we're praying for Paul, and boy, why I tell you, we had a wonderful night come down in, and he got into the games. He had a lot of time, fun, and we came down to the very end. I'm preaching the gospel message, and I come down to the end. I said, if you're a hellbound sinner, need Jesus, concerned about your soul, raise your hand. Paul's head's bowed, eyes closed, he raises his hand. Thinking, wow, this is great. When atheists say God's dealing in your heart, that's progress. <laughs> when a being they say doesn't exist is working in their heart, that's real good. He raises his hand. I thought, wow, this is good. Gave the invitation, Paul responds. I think this is wonderful. He goes back, found out later, the worker said he sat down, went through the gospel, and Paul in his intellectual manner says, you know, I, I, I just can't accept this. I've got to think about this. He said, I'm going to think about it any time. So the worker didn't press him and, and uh, let him go, and I found out about it. Of course, we continued to pray for Paul. Well, Paul comes back the next night. I was a little surprised he came back, but he came back, and, and I mean, it was perfect war conditions. Now, some of you have never seen the war. You have missed out on life, but uh, it, was, it was perfect war conditions. You say, what's that? It's about 75 degrees, and it's pouring rain. It cannot get any better than that. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was the honest truth. By the time we were done, all of us were soaked all the way, soaked all the way. And uh, the field, we destroyed their baseball field, but we had fun doing it, destroyed it. I mean, there were big potholes, you know. We played spoke tackle. Kids would fall down. they come up. They were totally covered with mud on one side. Unbelievable. Mothers hated us. Kids loved it. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so we played that night and came back, came in and gave the gospel, preached the message, nothing. Paul, I mean, kids moved, but Paul didn't. Well, Friday night, God had been working in the Christian school, and we had a wonderful week. Kids are getting right. Kids are talking to principals, getting right with mom and dad. It was just unbelievable. So we come to the final night, and, and uh, you know how it is after it rains, it started, it was in the fall, so, boom, you know, the, the, the temperatures just go, boom, right off a cliff. Started maybe at 60, and by the time we got to the campfire service, we're outside, it's 40s. It's cold. But I'll tell you, you could hardly tell it, because testimony started, and those kids, for 45 minutes to an hour, I should have timed it, those kids gave unbelievable testimonies. Testimonies like, yeah, I had bitterness in my heart, I got it right, man, I talked to my parents, man, I, it was wonderful. Yeah, I sneaking by my parents' back, man. I got that right one right after another. And I remember we finished it, and of course the it had been, it was an intense finish, and and we had a glow stick night that night, and and there were 150 kids, and there were 300 glow sticks. You turn off the lights, the kids just radiated. They glowed. They looked like they'd been to Japan and back. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> Radioactive. I mean, it was unbelievable. Some of you didn't get that, but anyway, so. Um, Spirit was high. These kids give their testimony. comes to the very end. I preached a short gospel message, gave an invitation. Nothing from Paul. Nothing. So I was burdened for Paul. Finished it. First guy I'm going to talk to is Paul. So I walk up to Paul, and I said, Paul, can I take a Bible and, and go over what we went on? He said, no. Nah. He said, you've already done that. I didn't feel led in pursuing it, so I kind of walked away. And, and when I did, um, Paul was just in a T-shirt. You ever met people who are really cerebral, but they have no common sense? You know what I'm talking about? It's 45 degrees. He's in a T-shirt. The kid's freezing. And so he makes a beeline for the fire. And when he comes to the fire, I'm going to be dead honest with you, those kids who had gotten right with God were waiting for him. I was gone about five minutes, came back through the fire, and a young lady said, Brother Van Gelderen, Paul wants to get saved. I said, Paul, come with me. Walked into a garage that we had heated there and to do personal work, sat down. In fact, I got a senior in high school who I found out later had witnessed to Paul during that testimony service. Senior in high school. We sat down, we went through the gospel. This kid, Daniel, who was the senior in high school, he's sitting there burdened. You know what I find? When kids get right with God, spiritual things start happening. It's amazing. 
He's burdened, man. And we're going there. And finally, I go through the gospel. And I said, I normally wouldn't do this. But I said, Paul, do you have any questions? He said, yeah. He said, how do you know that book's true? And I will tell you, friends, I wish every week I could say this. And many weeks we can. But I'll tell you, I looked at him and I said, Paul, come on. You just heard kids talk about God in a real way you've never heard before. And you tell those kids, talk about the truth in this book and what it has done to transform their lives. I said, come on, Paul. And I'll never forget it. No hesitation. He looks me right in the eye and says, I want to get saved. And I'm going to just be dead honest with you, friend. I did not lead Paul to Jesus Christ. Those kids did. With the power of 1 John 1, 9. Kids who were bitter kids who had grudges against their parents, kids who were not right with God, kids who were sneaking music, internet problems, kids who were not right with God. But believe 1 John 1, 9. Found the cleansing, got freed from the prison house of guilt, and simply got up and gave testimony. And friends, you knew they were telling the truth. It radiated from them. That agnostic atheist kid Paul could not deny the reality of God. Why? The power of 1 John 1, 9. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? I know at the very beginning of a conference, and I know there's much more to come. But I realize there may be someone tonight who's ready to do business with God. There may be a teenager who knows, I got to get right with my dad. I got to first get it right with God, and then I got to make a beeline to death. I don't know. I don't know what your issue might be. The heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask a simple question. How many would say, preacher, tonight, as I'm sitting here, God knows in my heart I'm not perfect, no man is, but I cannot think of any human being on this planet that I'm covering sin from that deserves to know. I can't think of anybody. I can't think of anything I got to get right with parents. I can't think of any employer I got to get right with. I can't think, I just can't, any academic situation. Say, preacher, I'm not perfect, but I cannot think of any person that I'm covering sin from. I can't think of anybody. I'm not perfect, no man is, but I just, best I can, I can tell, I can't think of anybody I'm covering sin from that deserves to know. Would you just lift your hand, put it right up and put it right back down. This is not for me, this is for you. This is for you. Okay, would you join me in just standing to your feet right where you are? Just standing to your feet. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now, friend, if you're here without Jesus Christ, your decision is not to confess your sin. Your decision is to trust Jesus to wash your sins away and keep you out of hell. You need to be saved. And although we've not preached a message on that tonight, perhaps your heart has been stirred about the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves you, sent Jesus to die on a cross, was buried, he rose again the third day, and if you'll trust him, my friend, the Bible says, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission. That's forgiveness of sins. He will save you tonight if you'll just trust him to do it. Believe that he died for you, was buried, rose again, conquering sin, death, and hell, and he can save you tonight if you'll trust him. So if you need Jesus tonight, you need to be saved, you want to know your sins are washed away, you want to know you're going to heaven, you can get out of the prison house of guilt too for the very first time by trusting Jesus. You come, let the pastor know, I need Jesus. They'll know what to do. But dear Christian, how about you? Is God dealing with you tonight? You know, Jesus loves us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore fellowship. He desperately wants to. The provision has been made. The condition has been given. It is ours to believe it. Obey it and to believe it. Depend upon him for the strength to do it. 
the heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking in just a moment, our instruments will begin to play. Dear friend, if God has touched your heart, I just invite you to come. The pastors will be down front if you need help. If you just need to meet with God, meet with God. But as instruments play, we'll just give a few moments here for folks to do business with God.